Fixing climate change is much easier than the alternative. Want something hard? Living with climate change instead of addressing it head on. Welcome to The Future is Electric, a techno-optimistic podcast associated with the medium publication of the same name. We explore the future with a recurring focus on climate change, technologies which are transforming our world, and a side helping of politics and culture. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, Chief Strategist of TFIE. Population is a current obsession of the deny and delay crowd. On the one hand, there's the inaccurate, ahistorical, and racist assertion that it's population growth that's the problem, specifically in countries where there are people who aren't white and Christian. That ignores the Brundtland Report, 40 years of population action, and population growth that's expected to top, stop in 2100 or so. But people who deny facts deny all inconvenient facts. On the other hand, there's the assertion that those concerned with climate change are ignoring the only real solution, or, in the more fevered imaginations of some of the denialists set, working toward it, which is to say intentional and massive depopulation. This group are claiming that climate alarmists are cheering on the relatively low fatality Wuhan coronavirus in the hope that it will depopulate the Earth, ascribing genocidal impulses to those actually trying to prevent large-scale problems from getting worse. This is a regularly recurring disinformation meme set. It started cropping up again late last year. A CBC reporter reached out to ask me about it, and I provided them with some historical context for how cycles of disinformation wash, wash through the denialosphere. We went to Google Trends and confirmed that this one was both cyclical and peaking again. And of course, it's complete nonsense and completely counterfactual. Let's talk about what happens if we don't tackle the now highly visible and increasing impacts of climate change to human population. We will see tens and potentially hundreds of millions in refugee streams, just as we saw millions in Syrian refugee streams, something caused in part by climate change, as it made a regional drought worse. That changed politics for the worse across Europe and North America, and hundreds of thousands died. We will see low-lying countries with hundreds of millions of citizens devastated by annual floods, becoming economic disaster zones. As we saw in 2017, when a third of Bangladesh was flooded and 41 million of its citizens displaced. That unprecedented monsoon flooding was heightened to its level of severity by climate change. We will see more diseases we have no response to emerging across the world as bacteria and fungi adapt to higher and often moister climates, ones which overlap with the human body, and so used to be, and so used to be agricultural pests only. <clears throat> That's already happened, per the best thinking, with the C. oris fungus, which independently evolved on three continents and since 2009 has been causing deaths, catatonia, and organ failure in those infected. As a long-time agricultural pest, C. oris is multiply resistant to antifungal agents as well. We will so see oceanic acidification increasingly collapsing shellfish fisheries, which are an important source of calories for our populations. We'll see agencies, budgets, and other resources which have been devoted to long-term strategic avoidance and diminution of major problems 
start to shift to, to dealing with increasingly increasing nurturing disasters and impacts instead, leaving us with fewer resources to address underlying problems as we apply futile band-aids to gaping symptoms. The problem is likely to kill tens or hundreds of millions prematurely, possibly more. That would likely lead to an increase in birth rate as populations decline into poverty and birth control becomes a foreign luxury again. Child mortality rates would also skyrocket again. So what's the alternative? Well, actually, it's easy to solve this problem. We have 95 to 90% of the technical solutions already, and they are already scaling globally. The problem breaks down into five major chunks, each of which is mostly solved already. The first is emissions of greenhouse gases from electrical generation. Mark said Jacobson's and Mark Diesendorf studies, along with at least 10 others, make it clear that we can transform electrical generation to 100% renewables quickly, cheaply, and with a strongly reliable grid. The high grid reliability of Texas, Germany, and Denmark, along with their low wholesale electricity rates, makes it clear that this isn't a problem. Jacobson's study shows that even with a very conservative model of often high-cost solutions as they exist today, the world would save trillions annually in energy costs. After all, we use fossil fuels as energy sources today, which means we throw away about two-thirds of the energy in them in the form of waste heat, while simultaneously causing global warming and massive air and water pollution issues. Switching, switching to renewable electricity avoids massive waste due to inefficiency and avoids negative, massive negative externalities we are already paying for. Continent-scale grids, improved electricity and ancillary services markets, HDV, HVDC, and demand management are making the amount of new storage we need much smaller than most suppose. But we have three technologies in hand already for the storage we need. Lithium-ion batteries are great for in-day peak demand and load shifting of solar, as well as ancillary services. Redox flow batteries overlap out to the 48-hour mark. Pumped hydro overlaps redox flow batteries out to the weeks needed for worst-case scenarios, as an, and is an incredibly robust, proven, and cheap-per-megawatt-hour form of storage, something we started building in the 1890s, and something we, we built a lot of to balance inflexible generation assets such as nuclear and coal plants. We have proven solutions in this space, and more emerging every year. The cost of wind and solar generation is cheaper than any other form of new generation already, cheaper than many existing forms, paid-for forms of generation, and still getting cheaper. The second is transportation, from personal transportation to long-haul ships and jets. We have solutions today for about 97% of transportation emissions. Tesla and others are providing electric cars with greater than 200-mile ranges, when we drive on average less than 40 miles per day, even in the most car-addicted, sprawling countries such as the United States. BYD has been providing electric transit and utility vehicles for two decades, and China has over 400,000 electric buses on the roads of its cities. Tesla, Rivian, and Ford are going to deliver pickups and other workhorse utility vehicles for fleets and consumers. Tesla, Daimler, and others are going to deliver short and long-haul freight trucks. Freight rail is already diesel-electric hybrid everywhere and partially electrified with externally sourced electricity in multiple countries. China and Europe have 25,000 miles of high-speed passenger rail between them already, 
enough to girdle the globe. We already have small electric airplanes being sold on two continents. We have multiple electrified regional commuter planes emerging from major aerospace firms and startups. And we can see the divergence of air passengers to higher speed rail and autonomous cars as obvious pathways regardless. We have interim solutions or long haul for long haul shipping and air transportation already too. Biodiesel and biokerosene have existed for well over a decade and several have been certified for air transportation. There are much lower CO2 emissions and fossil fuels and provide an invaluable bridge to what Jacobson and T team believe will be a green hydrogen drive trans for these modes of transportation, avoiding even the lower emissions of biofuels, but also their high global warming potential black carbon or soot emissions. That will have a capital cost implication, but it will occur over a longer airframe and hull replacement or refurbishment timeframe. The world would become quieter, less smelly, and less polluted as transportation decarbonizes. The third is land use. A study out of Switzerland makes clear that we have room to plant about a trillion trees, roughly a third more than we have today, and about a third of the ones we've chopped down since the beginning of our civilization. Those are insufficient to stop global warming, but provide an, an important decades-long carbon sink that gives, gives us a bit of breathing room, along with better air to breathe, shade, habitat for wildlife, and a resource for building durable wood infrastructure, keeping the carbon sunk for longer. And a subset of that carbon will go through the glomalin pathway into long-term soil carbon capture sequestration. <clears throat> and then there's agriculture. We currently use high tillage approaches, which disrupt the underground mycelium networks of soil fungi, and that in turn disrupts the glomalin pathway to long-term soil carbon cap sequestration. Shifting to low tillage agriculture radically increases soil carbon capture, once again giving us a decades-long carbon sink, which gives us time to decarbonize. The fourth is industry and buildings. As we de decarbonize electricity, Buildings become greener regardless of what else we do. A building in British Columbia, Canada, where electricity has 15 grams of CO2e per kilowatt hour, is already much lower carbon emissions than an identical building in neighboring Alberta, where electricity has a hefty 800 grams of CO2 or equivalent per kilowatt hour. Then we replace gas furnaces and air conditioning with modern heat pumps. The first is obvious, as burning gas creates greenhouse gases. The second is critical too, as the HFCs used in air conditions, conditioners are mostly high global warming potential gases, up to 14,000 times CO2's warming. But that replaces two mechanical systems with one, with obvious capital and maintenance health cost benefits, and two often inefficient systems with one modern efficient system, typically with significant operational cost benefits. In an era of electricity, getting or staying cheaper with cheap renewables, something seen in multiple jurisdictions already, while fossil fuels get more expensive with inevitable prices on carbon, the benefits just increase. Need high quality heat? Electric mini mills already create 1800 to 3000 degrees Celsius heat through high efficiency electric arc furnaces. We already have this problem solved is just cheap fossil fuels and legacy preventing us from applying electric heat instead of heat from fossil fuels. 
What about high-emission industrial processes such as potassium carbonate and concrete? In many cases, we have low-carbon, low-temperature processes waiting in the wings. In others, we can have solutions if we choose to pay for them. Concrete will likely get more expensive, which is challenging given how much of it we use of it. This is one of the few places without an already existing, obviously better solution we just aren't doing yet. But there is a lot of effort being put into finding that solution, just as there is a lot of effort on the part of the concrete industry to pretend it's not necessary. We'll solve that one. But we'll also solve it by using less concrete. Engineered wood frame buildings have much lower embodied carbon, and Canada is leading the way with approval for 12-story buildings using the technologies. Those trillion trees will mature and die, and sustainable, sustainable electrified forestry, which harvests them, turns in, them into engineered hardwood beams for construction, is an obvious pathway to preventing their embodied carbon from escaping into the atmosphere again. Our building, buildings will be differently constructed, but they'll still be warm and safe. Inhabitants won't notice the difference. Finally, there's the military. The U.S. military, per external estimates, is the single largest greenhouse gas-emitting organization in the world. The next seven militaries add up to the equivalent of this. Up until recently, no one had a good idea of what those military emissions really were. The Kyoto Protocol excluded military emissions. The Paris Accord includes military emissions. 199 countries around the world have started tracking military emissions, and after the 2020 election, the United States will most likely be rejoining the Paris Accord and starting to track them too. The leading Democratic candidates have overlapping plans for military emissions. The low-hanging fruits are permanent bases, basic logistics, and the mass of other military as as elements which aren't directly engaged in combat, where concerns of carbon emissions are a distant concern, compared to successfully achieving missions with minimum loss of life on all sides. Goals of 100% decarbonized bases are viable. Shifting is easy. We have 99% of the solutions. We just have to apply them quickly and efficiently. The alternative is vastly worse than solving climate change. But you'd never know it from listening to the deny and delay crowd. So ignore them. Vote out their parties, as Canada did in 2019, and the USA is likely to do in 2020. Deplatform them. Shun them. They are on the side of massive. On the, they are on the side of actual massive population challenges, and as usual, are projecting psychologically onto those who are actually dealing with reality. You have been listening to The Future is Electric, a techno-optimistic view of climate change, transformative technologies, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, Chief Strategist of TFIE. These podcasts are available from the medium publication of the same name, Anchor FM, and other podcast sites. Let us know that you are enjoying us via claps and medium, and tell us what you'd like us to cover next.